0: Beth, this is biology we're talking about. It's all hand-wavy, wishy-washy. <laughs> wow! I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Oh, Sienna's really offended, I'm kidding. Well, that's
1: the whole podcast series over.
2: <laughs> we are going to be talking about a lot of animal research and a little bit of human research. And so just like general warning animal research is gross to you as a listener maybe consider skipping this one
0: fair enough good warning.
2: anyways we're gonna be talking about it i won't go into super specific details of certain things but there is a lot of animal research in biology unsurprisingly and we have to talk about it to talk about the discoveries so hello and welcome to not yet a doctor where we span three time zones two continents to produce this one podcast my name is sienna I am a PhD student in neuroscience studying at McGill University.
1: My name is Beth. I'm a particle physics PhD student at Sapienza University of Rome.
0: And my name is Alistair. I'm an analytical chemistry PhD student at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario.
2: So today it is my week, and I kind of like waffled over what to tell you guys about all week because. You know, Alistair kind of suggested blood last time, and I'm like, blood is cool, but then immunology is cool, and development is cool. So ultimately, uh, with some help from a friend, I came to the decision to talk about stem cells, so that I, I can kind of talk about all of these things without talking about any of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> and also because stem cells are really cool, and I think they're um, going to be a really fun topic, and I feel like everybody has heard of a stem cell and has a feeling or think thought that they... Think when they hear the word stem cell so I kind of wanted to see what you guys knew about stem cells and learn you some stuff about them and also this is pretty cool because in my research I don't know if you guys know this but I work with cultures cell cultures so we take in cellular biology we scientists love to take cells out of organisms out of their natural environment within living things and study them in plates and dishes and grow them in incubators and so I do this in my regular day-to-day research With um, human neurons. Cool. So pretty cool. Neurons are the brain cells that extend the axons and send signals through the brain. But as you can imagine, human neurons are pretty difficult to get your hands on because they are locked inside, you know, a skull and a brain of a human. (laughs) So how do you think I get my hands on human neurons? You grow them.
1: Yeah, I'm guessing that given this is an episode on stem cells, I'm guessing that you take a stem cell... And you like put it in a Petri dish and you make the Petri dish into like an almost-brain. Into
2: an almost-brain. Thrive, my pretties. Thrive. This is pretty much a basic correct explanation of where I get my human neurons, is that I get them from stem cells. So we take the stem cells, we differentiate them, eventually they start to look like neurons and behave like neurons, and then we can study them as if they are neurons. So the first thing I wanted to ask you guys, now that I've kind of described what I do a little bit in the lab every day, is what does come to your mind when I say the word stem cells? Like, what do you think of, what is a stem cell to you guys?
1: Okay, so what comes to mind immediately is embryos.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I know that that's not, not only it, but that's what comes to mind. But in general, they're like types of cells that you can then manipulate into other types
2: of cells, right? Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of their key features for sure. What about you, Alistair?
0: A number of things come to mind. I know in our ep- your last episode, we talked a bit about stem cells because we were talking about um, olfaction and the olfactory yeah. nerves.
2: Good callback.
0: <laughs> so that comes to mind. Another thing that comes to mind when you talk about your research, too, is pluripotent stem cells. Uh-huh. And I don't know what that means, but that word just popped into my head. So I have a
1: guess. Okay, you go back. Okay. Based on my knowledge of Latin, mm-hmm. which of course is... Well, I'm, I am a Roman now, so, you know... <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing they have the power, the potency to become many, pluri different types of cells. Oh,
2: okay. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Wow. I loved that little linguistic explanation of pluripotency, which is something we're going to talk about. So,
0: And then I have one final thing that comes to mind, mm-hmm. and that's that there's like emerging research being done on using stem cells to do, to make babies specifically from two males or two females like two eggs or two sperm oh interesting and i don't quite i haven't had my finger on the pulse with this research yeah but um i think it's really interesting because you know that's probably how i'm gonna have kids um is you take two sperm and you like regress them back to stem cells Uh and then let them develop into an embryo maybe that's not the way it goes maybe it's (laughs) like it goes forward to stem cells or back or i don't i don't know the science like i said but that's what i think about when i think about stem cells is being able to create an organism from these cells Uh
2: uh-huh yeah i think i know what you're referring to and we can definitely talk about it at the end when we talk about the uses of stem cells all right okay great so yeah you both brought up great points i loved this description of pluripotency because that's something we're going to talk about and the fact that they can create many other types of cells which i think is obviously has been kind of the revolutionary feature of them in research and in the clinic, really. So there is actually like a list of characteristics that sort of define what a stem cell is. And so this list is of four things. And the first one is that stem cells reproduce themselves, first and foremost. So a stem cell cannot only give rise to other cells, but it actually self-reproduces. Because if you had a stem cell that could differentiate into a bunch of other things, but once it differentiated there was no more stem cell that wouldn't be really useful mm-hmm. in an organism because stem cells often are found at places where you need to produce more of a certain number of different types of cells so we have stem cells in our muscles stem cells obviously sit at the base layer of our skin and often our all of our epithelial linings like the lining of our gut has stem cells associated with it to produce all of the cells that kind of create and do these functions that are associated with that organ or tissue type and the stem cells sit there and wait and just repopulate the area as cells you know, naturally die or become too damaged to do their job anymore. But if stem cells didn't reproduce themselves, then we wouldn't be very long lasting because we kind of require them to continue on functioning. So that's characteristic one. Characteristic two is the one that you guys kind of associate with stem cells the most, which is that they can differentiate into a bunch of different functional cell types. And I say a bunch, but there's actually kind of different levels of stem cells at different places. And then there's like different types of terminology, like progenitor cells as opposed to stem cells. And this more talks about just where they are in the chain of going from a very, very undifferentiated cell to a very, very differentiated cell. So. And
0: by differentiated, you mean like specific? Like yeah, point?
2: it's a specific type of cell that might no longer divide at all. Or if it does divide it only creates copies of itself mm. and can't create any other type of cell so that's a different terminally differentiated cell it's called and like if you think of neurons neurons are all terminally differentiated mm-hmm. you won't get any other they don't divide at all to be fair but if they did they would probably only divide into neurons but they don't right <laughs> um, the other things there are two other kind of characteristics of stem cells that are like less talked about but Also important is that stem cells persist for a long time. This is obviously means that cells, like stem cells need to kind of exist as long as we're alive. And that's all that means. So they can reproduce themselves and they can also, they have a long lifespan. They don't just die off Mm -hmm. like blood cells do for instance.
0: It wouldn't be very useful if they were (laughs) only here for a few days or months.
2: Exactly, (laughs) exactly then they would have to be reproducing themselves all the time it would be very energetically demanding it would Mm -hmm. lead to more mutations to be acquired so you know luckily they persist for a long time and some of them don't actually differentiate or divide until they're needed which is an interesting feature of some stem cells but that's not a characteristic of all of them and then um the other kind of final fact is that stem cell behavior is regulated by the immediate environment oh interesting and this is called the niche And so that means if a stem cell is going to remain a stem cell, it usually has to remain in the spot it is in the body, because there's all sorts of chemical cues from that very specific location that regulate its stem cell behavior. Mm. And so if you look at actually the product, like the skin, you have a bunch of different layers. And at the bottom layer, you have the stem cells. And this is because they have contact with the basement membrane, I think, that is, it's just like kind of this extracellular accumulation of proteins at the bottom of the skin. But as they divide, they divide asymmetrically. So they're not dividing to expand longitudinally along there. They divide so that the top of them sort of becomes a new cell, which no longer has access to that membrane below. And because it loses these cues coming from there. That's what enables that new daughter cell to start to differentiate. Mm. And so asymmetric division versus symmetric division is kind of what actually contributes to mostly stem cells differentiating. So instead of differentiating in a way that they can maintain their own stem-like properties. They differentiate asymmetrically, which means that the cell that is born gets further away from the environmental niche that allows it to maintain its stem-like properties. Or alternatively, sometimes you can have protein accumulation within the cell that keeps all of the stem proteins in one of the cells. And then the daughter protein, or the daughter cell doesn't get any of those stem proteins and therefore it starts to differentiate.
0: Mm -hmm. And this is an interesting fact, and I'm sure you'll talk about this, but it's interesting because we like to think like, oh, like if you take a stem cell out of a human and you can grow a new heart or you can grow a new liver. But like if you take it out of its environment, what you're saying is it no longer wants to be anything. It can't be a stem cell. It can't be a liver cell. Yeah. It, you have to create that very specific chemical and physical environment.
2: And that's certainly Which, been the issue with stem cell research yeah. is figuring <laughs> out the what exactly like what exact factors are needed to take to kind of either recapitulate the environmental niche that you want to maintain that type of stem cell, or to just get it to differentiate down the path of a certain sort of cell lineage. And a cell lineage Mm -hmm. just refers to pretty much like, if you you can think of it like a family tree. So a cell lineage for blood cells is you start with a blood cell stem cell, and then it might differentiate into a specific type of sort of intermediate stem cell that can only differentiate into a couple different types of blood cells. And so this is a cell lineage. So if you follow right. it back, you get to the blood cell stem cell, which might be able to produce a lot of other ones, but there's different steps down along the process. So the, yeah, those are the four characteristics of stem cells.
1: Can you just do a quick summary?
2: Yeah, I will recap. So the, first they reproduce themselves, then they differentiate into other functional cell types and they last a long time, they live a long time and their behavior is regulated by their environment. So when we talk about stem cells we often refer to this potency that we were was brought up in the beginning and so what this means is just how many different types of differentiated cells can they produce and so there's kind of two very interesting types of potency that we're kind of going to discuss and then i'll there's a couple of other ones that are just again descriptive words but not really as interesting so the first interesting one are the stem cells that are considered totipotent which means they can produce every other cell type of an organism.
0: They're like the, the wild card.
2: <laughs> they are the ultimate They are the ultimate stem cell. They are the cell that like can do anything.
0: I'm trying to think of a, an analogy using either Yu-Gi-Oh! or Pokemon, but I am not well versed in either of those. <laughs> it's like the Yu-Gi-Oh! white dragon card.
2: They are the Ditto of Pokemon. Like, the Ditto of stem cells. They the can Ditto! Anything. They can become anything.
0: Beth, are you familiar with who Ditto is?
2: This is never a part of my childhood. (laughs) Ditto is a Pokemon that is just like a giant pink blob with like two dots for eyes. But its main feature as a Pokemon is that it can morph to look like any Pokemon in the universe. And that's all it does. Uh... Yeah. So after Totipotent, the next best stem cell is the Pluripotent stem cell. So this is the one that Beth explains so well. And these can produce all of the cells of an organism except the extra embryonic tissue. Okay. And so what this means is that, and this all comes from a lot of our understanding of stem cells does come from development and embryos like you brought up earlier, Beth. And so because in the developing embryo, if you think about it, the embryo actually itself produces the placenta and like produces the trophoblast and these kind of extra embryonic structures that don't become part of the organism, but become very key parts of the development of the embryo. Yeah, Beth, go.
1: I don't know what a trophoblast is.
2: A trophoblast is like a type of cell that is part of the extra embryonic tissue. It doesn't become part of the embryo in the end, but they provide nutrients to the embryo and become part of the placenta. And I think they also um, are important in contributing to the the, uh, attachment of the embryo to the uterine wall, I think.
1: Okay. So like, anything in pregnancy... That isn't the actual human being that's being created.
2: Yes, exactly.
0: So pluripotent stem cells can create any other cell except these special developmental cells that are... Exactly. ...ones that make up the placenta and trophoblasts and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Cool.
1: Which is pretty cool, anyway, because, like, if you end up wanting to do medicine with them, you probably don't really care about placentas and stuff like that. You care more about kidneys and livers and
2: yeah usually when we're looking at trying to regenerate organs we're not trying to regenerate placentas you're right (laughs) (laughs) this is true (laughs) so pluripotent stem cells are like huge interest to research and then the other two types that i can just mention but is multipotent it can produce multiple different cell types can't produce them all okay so most stem cells fall into multipotent stem cells
1: Mm -hmm. i realize that i'm coming at this from a physicist's perspective and not a biologist's perspective but
0: that's why we have you on the podcast but (laughs)
1: is (laughs) that's what i'm here for is there like a number that's like below this threshold it's multipotent above this threshold it's pluripotent or is it all just very hand wavy wishy-washy let's call it um multi-one because why
2: not no no so pluripotent cells are specifically ones that can produce all cell types. Oh, yeah, okay. Multipotent can produce some cell types. Okay. So pretty much everything between, like, after pluripotent is a multipotent, except for this one other type of stem cell called a unipotent, which means it can produce one other type of differentiated cell.
1: Yep. Okay.
2: So most of them are multipotent, is what we like. And all of the ones that we find in our bodies, except for the unipotent ones, I guess, are multipotent.
0: Is a olfactory um, stem cell unipotent? Because the the fun fact that we learned about stem cells in, in the olfactory system is that olfactory neurons are the only type of neurons that regenerate. And we get new neurons every 30 days, I think it was. Yeah. No, so
2: they're multipotent, I believe.
0: Okay. Okay.
2: The olfactory stem cells in the neural epithelium that we talked about previously do produce the olfactory neurons. But they also produce support cells. Oh, okay. What are support cells? Yeah. Cells that support the neurons. They cheer them take on. Care of them. Give them, like, nutrients. Help them do their functions better. Okay. So, how did we discover stem cells? This is where I'm going to start. So, we're going to do a little bit of history of the discovery of stem cells. And this was kind of a funny uh, path to go down for me because... I started with being like, well, what was the first stem cell discovered? And then I was like, well, wait a minute. Surely we knew about stem cells, or at least the idea of them before that, because we knew about developmental biology. I went back to the 1900s, like the early, early, early 1900s for these answers and everything else that happened before 1900, I just assume like is part of the general knowledge now. I think that's fair. A hundred years. I, I don't. I don't know who the first person was to observe that sperm fertilizes egg, and that's how you produce an embryo. I don't know who did that.
0: That's that's another. Probably episode. somebody a
2: long time ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, embryology it was called the field uh, of study, which is kind of now developmental biology. A lot of the very important research was done in the early nineteen hundreds, all the way up to now, I guess, but. The early 1900s to mid-1900s kind of characterized the discovery of how cells divide within a developing embryo and all this type of thing. And so this researcher called Hans Feynman was doing research in 1903 and essentially he studied newt eggs. And so as we talked about before, an egg or like an amphibian egg is just one cell. And it's a very big cell and it's nice because that means you can see it visually. And then also you don't need like a super, super high powered microscope, which obviously we didn't necessarily have super, super high powered microscopes Mm -hmm. easily accessible in 1903.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like (laughs) the electron scanning microscope (laughs)
2: was (laughs) years later. Just a few years later. We did have microscopes, but (laughs) I mean, you didn't need electron scanning. You still, we don't need electron scanning microscopes to look at cells. You can see them with 200 times magnification, which is just like a 20 X microscope. It, you can fairly easily get that sort of level of magnification, but fairly easily now, maybe not as fairly easily in 1903. So it was nice to work with things that you could, like, at least see by eye and you didn't need even more magnification to see or that much more. Yeah. Like, even if you had, like, a magnifying glass that was already, like, for a new egg, that's, like, pretty useful because it's already big enough that you don't need to magnify it too much more to see anything going on. So essentially, what he discovered was that. At the beginning of fertilization, when you have, like, the first cell that's been fertilized, so the egg has just combined with the sperm, before it divides once, if you sort of split it in half, then you can get two identical embryos out of it. Like, you will have two identical newts. And so what he did, (laughs) this is, like, pretty wild. He took a hair from his daughter, who was a baby, so a very, very, very fine hair, and he lassoed the egg, with
0: just <laughs> like the Wild West over here. <laughs>
2: yes. So he wrapped it around um, <laughs> longitudinally, and essentially just constricted the egg enough so that a nucleus from the nucleus couldn't get to the other side okay. of the egg. And so he just did this and constricted it, and Are left they squishy? it squishy. Yeah, they're kind of like. Have you ever had roe, like fish eggs no, on sushi or anything, like that. caviar? No, like I've you?
1: seen documentaries, and oh, also like I've seen like um, what do you what do you call tadpoles before they're tadpoles? What? Eggs. Frog spawn.
0: No eggs. Frog spawn. Sure, frog frog spawn. Frogs- sure, e- but like that's the egg. Frog
1: spawn. <laughs> A tadpole is like the first thing. Yeah. They develop from eggs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eggs. But I meant like what did, did yeah. it, like frog eggs? Okay, but yeah, it's a frog. It's like a frog egg. Yeah, which is frog
0: spawn. But, like, if, Beth, if you want to think about the chicken egg, just remove, remove the shell. Yeah, yeah, remove okay. Remove the shell from a chicken egg, and there's that membrane. Yeah. That's what uh, an amphibian yeah. egg is like, because it doesn't need the protection that a chicken egg does. It doesn't need the hard outer shell.
2: Because nobody's going to sit on it. And also, actually, the other reason why the chicken egg needs the shell is so that it doesn't dry out.
0: Ah, true, right.
2: Because animals are definitely going to eat frog eggs yeah. and nude eggs. They don't, but they don't have the shell because they don't need to th- dry, because they're yep. laid in water, right. so they won't dry out. Yep. Yeah. So that's actually the reason, a major reason for shells.
1: So, uh, newts, like frogs, are amphibians. Yes. And therefore, newt te- eggs new are very much like frog eggs, which is frog spawn, which is jelly-like. Yeah,
2: you can really just, yeah, just picture your frog spawn. Right. A lot of, a lot of this research was done in frogs okay. anyways. So, it j- just so happens that Hans Speyman worked on newts okay. in this one, but honestly, very similar situation for frogs. A lot of developmental biology research was done on frogs for the exact same reason as that the eggs are big and external to the animals. Okay, so, thank very you. Very useful to
0: So, say. how did he cut okay. this egg? Yeah, he took a hair.
2: He took a hair. <laughs> <So> he took <laughs> a hair and lassoed it and constricted it enough. So, he didn't cut it in half first, he just constricted it enough that the nucleus couldn't get from one side to the other or like that it, it typically was preserved to one side. And he found that on the side that the nucleus was, these cells would divide, but nothing would happen on the other side. Fair, makes sense. It was constricted. Yeah, um, that's what you expect. Eventually, it says, often as late as the 16 cell stage. So the other thing about newts and frogs is that they have timed cell divisions, which means all of the cells divide at the same time at the beginning of the development. So if you have a cell, one cell, and it divides into two cells, then each of these are eventually going to divide, and they're going to divide at the same time. So then it's going to form four cells, eight cells, 16 cells. So they have very specific time points in their early development that can be counted as the number of cells present in the embryo.
1: Yeah.
2: In the developing zygote. Essentially what would happen is like, as there became more and more cells on the one side of this constricted egg, one nucleus or one cell would just end up slipping through to the other side. And so then he cut it. And what he found is now this side of the embryo would actually just start to develop, and it would give rise to a newt that was just slightly younger than its other newt. Wait, say again? He cut what? So after after a cell would slip through to the other side, then he just, like, constricted it enough to, like, cut Ah. it enough. And you'd think, like, cutting it like that maybe would just, like, break it, but because I think it was such a fine, fine, fine hair... And because membranes are sort of fatty, pliable, that it would just reseal. And so then this one that hadn't been developing all of this time would now start to develop. And it would start at the one-cell stage and to develop into two cells and then four cells. Even though the other one that had already been developing was already at 16 cells and 32 that's cells interesting. and 64 cells.
0: That's interesting that you can take yeah. a 32-cell
2: yeah. that's
0: like, oh, I'm at the 32-cell stage, time to duplicate one more. And then it's like, whoops, no, just kidding. I'm at the one-cell stage all over again. Because exactly if it were like chemo sensing or if it were like based on like what's in that sac you'd think that diffusion would mean that even though it's very very constricted small molecules would get through that constriction so this this one cell over here still thinks it's in the environment of the 32 cells that's Mm -hmm. fascinating to me
2: yeah yeah that's really interesting and so essentially like that was the first time it was really shown that these cells at like a 16 cell stage or a 32 cell stage were pretty much the exact same as they were at the one cell stage and they could create a whole organism. So this was like the first like Mm totipotent sort of cell we discovered and like this idea of- this is how
0: twins are born. This is how twins are made. Identical Mm -hmm. twins. Sometimes. Yes, identical twins are, this is what happens. Fraternal twins is something else. It's a double egg fertilization.
2: In the terms of identical twins, actually, depending on the timing that this happens, you can also have identical twins that share the same placenta and support structures, or you can have just, like, two completely mm-hmm. separate ones, depending yeah. on when they That's split. a
0: whole other podcast, again, is development. And...
2: <laughs> a whole other podcast talking yeah. about twin types. We're not getting into That's that. Okay, basically, but... I mean, this is...
0: if
1: yeah. I recap,
2: he, like, mm-hmm. tied
1: a hair around Yeah. A, a... some frogs. <laughs> So (laughs) Newtie frog spawn to like divide it into two and what happened was that one half would develop and the other half wouldn't but then at some stage somehow one cell would work
2: its way through to the other side.
0: Before he split them.
2: Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was like our first kind of demonstration that a cell from an embryo at a specific stage could still produce a whole new embryo. And it didn't, like, there wasn't any change at that point. And so in 1918, this is still Hans Speyman. So he was interested in whether or not these cells, like, for how long can these cells produce whole embryos? Mm -hmm. Right? So yeah, so what he could do, you can have, there's like two different species of newts. They have different pigmentation. So you can kind of tell which one's which in the egg one will be darker than the other. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that's really nice about amphibian development is that it has very defined developmental axes. And so what this means, our axes are kind of like dorsal-ventral axis, left-right axis, anterior-posterior axis. And so in frogs and newts and all amphibians, you can see the dorsal-ventral axis from pretty much the start of development so you know so ventral dorsal ventral is back belly so the belly is the ventral Mm -hmm. side the back is the dorsal side and so when you look at a frog egg or a new egg before it's really even started developing you know where the belly is going to be located
1: you know which side's which
2: cool yeah so what he could do because he knew which way was dorsal ventral is that in the dorsal side too you know that a lot of the dorsal cells are gonna become epidermal cells, which is like skin and neural tissue. And so he could take a piece of future epidermal tissue where the neural cell normally developed because the uh, axes are so well defined, you know where it's going to develop. And he transplanted it onto another egg in a different location. And so depending on when you did this, either what would happen is if you did this really early on, and it doesn't say exactly how early on but if you did this really early on these cells would become belly cells so if you transplanted non belly cells to the belly cell region they would become belly cells cool but if you did this later on it would become neural tissue or epidermal tissue so you would get kind of a development of a dorsal structure in a ventral region
1: that's so weird also that you can like that you could transplant Alistair's back onto my belly. You,
0: d- you don't want my back. I got knots and...
1: just the... <laughs> Alistair, your face. <laughs> <laughs> Alistair is 100% graced out right now. But my question is, what happens to like the genetic... Would it still be like Alistair's back and I'd still have like Alistair's
2: DNA on my belly? yeah absolutely absolutely so that was how they could even tell the difference like that's how they knew that the cells the belly cells in the first experiment belonged to the other embryo is because like i said they had used two different colored Uh. nukes (laughs) and so those belly cells were pigmented compared to the other newt, which was not the importance of this experiment was that there is a time period for which cells can become anything but this is developmentally restricted and there's a certain point where a cell Knows what it's going to become, and you can't change that anymore.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. So this gave up like the idea of a stem cell is something that really doesn't know what it's going to become or is okay with becoming anything.
0: That sounds like me and my PhD research.
2: <laughs> yeah, and then there's some cells that are just like committed to a lineage, and they're going to go down that lineage now, no matter what. Yeah. That's like me and my PhD research. <laughs> <laughs> and so. Interestingly, like, this was done in 1903 and 1918, but we didn't find, like, the stem cells of mice until, like, the 70s and the 80s. Yeah. Wow. And the reason for this is that it was really, really, really hard to study mouse development because we were also, like, throughout the 1900s, we were also still developing in vitro fertilization, developing ways to kind of culture embryos in a dish for an extended amount of time without them just dying. And so Mm. I couldn't, I didn't really find a timeline of all of this, but it just does seem like a lot of this was happening all at the same time. And so a lot of these discoveries are kind of made in really random orders. And like, you think they Mm. would have something, like you think that they would line up and have to do like follow along one with another, but it doesn't actually look like that as much. It's because the next discovery of a stem cell, like the discovery of the first stem cell that we knew of from humans happened in the 19. 60s, well,
1: 1961. Mm, wow, um, so a lot later than yeah. uh, 1903 that. Right. What's his face was thing about when
0: he's was... famous. Yeah, <laughs> a lot later. I gotta say that's kind of a cool thing about science, though, is that like, you can do your work and do this research, and you know, you you develop a little body of, of work, publications, and what have you, and then maybe people don't use it right then, but later on down the road, someone will come along and see what you have done, Mm -hmm. and go wow, this is really interesting, and I can take it here, given the technology and capabilities we have in the 1960s, and then we can look at the 1960s and go, wow, look at all that cool stuff that they did with like, for instance, I'm thinking about plasmas, when I was doing my research on plasmas, it was a similar thing, like stuff was found out really early Mm -hmm. on, but we didn't know what to do with it, until technology progressed and, you know, people came along with different ideas and perspectives, and, and ran with it, so it's yeah, that's cool.
2: So, yeah, I think this is interesting because it feels like a lot of these things happened in parallel for different reasons, as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. So obviously, in 1945, there was World War Two and the atomic bomb explosions happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. And we learned a lot about radiation exposure from this because we saw like people who had encountered low radiation exposure after the bombs died after an extended period. And it was shown, that, like, we noticed that they had a compromised blood cell system. So this was the reason for why we assumed that people passed away after low radiation exposure that wasn't necessarily enough to kill someone immediately. So this was like
3: mm.
2: really awful, but people wanted to figure out what was going on.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so people went to work with mice, obviously, Uh, to try and figure out why radiation, low radiation dosages could, would induce sort of failure of the hematopoietic systems, they're called, their blood systems,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: and why they died. And so essentially researchers would just give like low but lethal dosages of radiation to mice, they'll, they die within two weeks. But then another experiment noticed that if you prevented radiating any bone like a single bone or their spleen like if you just protected that from radiation then the mouse would not die from this lethal dose they would actually live and same if you interesting also infused like if you just gave them a blood donation after after the radiation Mm -hmm. then they would also still live and so like immediately after um i'm not exactly sure when after but i think immediately after yes okay
0: from from a healthy mouse
2: sometime yeah, from a healthy mouse, from an unirradiated mouse. So essentially, if you made sure that like either their bone marrow or their spleen or their blood was not irradiated or they got some not irradiated blood, then they would live through this lethal minimal lethal dose of radiation, it's called. Interesting. And
0: so the bone marrow and the spleen and blood are all part of the hematopoietic system?
2: Yeah, so you can think of it like... What we know now, I guess, is that the bone marrow is responsible for, like, it's where maturation of your blood cells occurs. So we know now that the hematopoietic stem cell that I'm going to tell you about in a bit lives typically in the bone marrow.
3: Mm.
2: And that's where it divides and creates like pre-blood cells, like pre-red blood cells and things like this. And then the spleen is also another important part of the hematopoietic system. It's typically where blood cells go to die, but I mean, it's very, it has a lot of blood. So... Uh, presumably it could also preserve some of the stem cells there too. And then, yeah, obviously your blood is part of the blood system. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess researchers wanted to figure out why when you transplanted blood cells, you could get the survival of the mouse. And presumably it was because they're compromised. Like we knew that the hematopoietic system was compromised from radiation. So presumably somehow blood from another mouse could reinvigorate their hematopoietic system, their whole system. Mm -hmm. And so there are two scientists, James Till and Ernst McCulloch, who started assessing this in mice by radiating mice, and then transferring bone marrow to them that was unirradiated. And so I was like, but why did they do that? (laughs) It's like, what? Yeah. Um, So in their older paper, they said, the use of intravenously injected bone marrow cells as a means of preventing death in superlethally irradiated animals, provided a means of studying the effects of this irradiation, without the complications introduced by the moribund state. By the what state? Moribund.
0: What does that mean? Yeah,
2: <laughs> so
1: they were like, "We're gonna kill you, and then we're gonna study study you
2: afterwards." It was like, it's inconvenient that they die after <laughs> we provide lethal amounts of radiation because we can't study oh. what happens long-term. So if we inject bone marrow cells, they live longer. Great. Now we can study long-term effects of this level of radiation. And they're like,
0: cool, cool. It's great that we just inject the bone marrow. We don't know what's happening there, but we don't want to study that. We just want to do the well, so radiation.
2: To be fair, they were studying... Originally, Like a lot of the studies was done in changes that were occurring in blood proteins. Mm-hmm. So And... We kind of knew that bone marrow was associated with blood and produced blood, so I think they did it because they thought maybe that would help recover the changes that we were seeing happening to the blood proteins and allow them to study them for longer times. I'm not sure. Essentially, what they found is when they injected bone marrow into these leafly irradiated mice, when they looked at the spleen afterwards, and the spleen is highly vascularized, so it has a lot of blood vessels, and it just checks your blood, and if your blood is old and the cells need to go, they go, goodbye cells. And what they found is that when they injected bone marrow into these mice, they would get all of these nodules or colonies of like blood cells forming on the spleen.
3: Mm.
2: And they were like, this is very strange. And so they called them colony forming units and essentially found that there was a linear relation between the amount of bone marrow they injected and the number of nodules or colonies that formed on the spleen. And eventually what they found is that each colony was associated with a very specific genetic identifier so what this meant is that each colony was kind of originating from a single cell that had landed there and this is how we discovered the blood stem cell the hematopoietic stem cell and later on that was more characterized and stuff but this was kind of like the first discovery of it interesting yeah this was in 1960s so then we knew about stem cells and we were like oh this is great like very interesting now we know like how blood is formed we know that we can form all of the other blood types with just this like one cell type in the bone marrow I mean we didn't know what cell it was still for a very long time we had to like characterize all the cells in the bone marrow and like look at different proteins on their surfaces and sort them a billion different ways until we finally found a way to like isolate it and it's like a very small percentage of the cells in our bone marrow so it's very hard to like get a hold of but um, it's there and it's existing and it's actually producing all of your blood cells yeah yeah so that was the first stem cell that we ever discovered. And then in the 1980s, as I mentioned, then we discovered mouse embryonic stem cells. And so this was done by Martin Evans and he was at Cardiff University. Hmm. And, oh, by the way, okay, the two guys, I forgot to mention the two guys who discovered, did the radiation stuff and discovered the first stem cell are actually from the University of Toronto and it's James Till and Ernest McCulloch. That's so cool. Yeah, good for that. I've them. been to Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> So have I. <laughs> Me too.
0: <laughs> we've all been to Toronto.
2: Wait, we've all been there together. Yeah.
0: So then, 1980s.
2: So then, skip ahead to the 1980s, we discovered the mouse embryonic stem cells. And this was essentially due to the fact that the mouse is nice because it has a ton of uteruses, so it produces a ton of fertilized embryos, which at this stage Wait, are called, what? I think...
1: Yeah.
3: yeah.
2: They have more than one uterus. Yeah, they have, like... I don't know much about... The real anatomy words for things but they have like separate uteruses for each embryo which kind of look like beads on a string essentially so the thing about mice then is that they have all these uteruses they have all these babies so when you get a mouse pregnant it's hard to get out the early 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 developing embryo which is what we wanted to study mouse embryonic stem cells so essentially this guy martin evans at cambridge cardiff university just figured out a way to prevent them from attaching To the uterine wall Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and so then he could just collect them all and grow them then he was able to like figure out a method to then get the cells out that were the embryonic stem cells and grow them and maintain them in culture for a long time and so that's how he proved that they were embryonic Mm -hmm. stem cells and yeah he actually got a Nobel prize for his work on embryonic stem cells Mm -hmm. so very important stuff because then it also led to a way we found it figured out how to do this for humans as well and so this is when we have to start talking about in vitro fertilization because we obviously weren't collecting multiple fertilized embryos from multiple uteruses when it came to humans. So what we actually had was there's a tons of leftover embryos from IVF when you do IVF. So like in the, again, I think 70s, 60s to 80s, but 70s was when we started figuring out how to do IVF. Right. And then in 1998, we kind of figured out how to take these developing human embryos, zygotes, that are in a dish from IVF and get out the embryonic stem cells from them so that we could then propagate human stem cells in culture for long periods of time. Yeah, so very exciting Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, Then we have a brief interlude in human stem cell research in the US because in 2001, President George W. Bush enacted this policy called the Stem Cell Policy And essentially, there was a lot of pressure on him from, like, religious groups and lobbyists, I guess. I don't know much about politics, but pressure from people who thought that using anything that could become a human in research was unethical. Mm. And because these leftover fertilized eggs had the potential to become a human if they were transplanted eventually into a uterus, that meant it was unethical to use them for research. Mm -hmm. So from 2001 until 2009 researchers in the u.s were not allowed to use them wow
1: this is serious hypocrisy honestly
2: and so it was it was crazy because like there was so much stem cell research happening in the u.s at this time and then all of a sudden this policy came down and we couldn't create any new stem cell lines and so it's like i think there was like an existing 20 or so lines that people had already made and so he was like you can continue working with those but you can't make any new ones. But 20 lines is nothing. Like, you can't do anything with like yeah. that. It meant, like, they were they were all from Caucasian couples. So we obviously couldn't study anything about diversity in That's development crazy. at all. Like, this was, so it was just, it was a weird time for stem cell research. So and
0: by lines, by lines, you mean, like, types of stem cells going to other types of stem cells and cells?
2: Line, lines, just, sorry. A cell line is a, in cell culture, you work with cell lines. Mm-hmm. And so these are cells that you can maintain for long periods in culture because they divide and reproduce. Oh, it's like a little
0: family. Like you've got a little a little family of cells. Yeah, that you can keep going.
2: And so a specific cell line means that cell that gave rise to that population and culture that can reproduce itself came from a specific source.
0: You know, it's genetic information, like it's well characterized. Yeah,
2: I mean, like, you know where it came from. You made it. It might change its genetic information over time because mutations. Right. Overall, like, that just means that there were probably, like, 20 or so embryos that they had successfully gotten human stem cells out of to propagate in culture. Okay. And that's a cell line.
0: Okay. So, it wasn't that there were, like, 20, there weren't 20 Petri dishes around the world that they could keep going. It was, like, there's 20 original parents. Yeah. Or, like, parent cells.
2: 20 original sources, yeah.
0: Sources that we will still let you grow and do research yeah. on, but you can't ones. So, 20, get
2: like, ones. 20 biologically different sort like cells yes essentially okay
1: it's so dumb as well because like if you don't do research on these things and they don't get transplanted into a human you're just gonna destroy them anyway Mm -hmm. like no yep
2: (laughs) yeah you're right (laughs) uh they either get destroyed or they just get frozen and yeah but at some stage you get rid of them anyway right like yeah i mean i don't really know what happened between 2001 and 2009 but i think like It's possible a lot of them are just stored and frozen and maybe not so much destroyed. But, yeah, for sure, also, a lot of them would have just been thrown out. Because, yeah, if you only implant a certain number, if you had more than that, that were, like, implantable. I don't know. People are weird. It's strange.
0: So research just ground to a halt in 2001 to 2009.
2: Yeah, in the U.S. And um, it was difficult because they were doing, like, a lot of the research on this stuff and kind of, like... It impacted all of their collaborations with international labs, too, because all of a sudden they couldn't provide human stem cells, they couldn't, like, do anything with them, they couldn't get more. Also the idea that the
1: people who are really affected in this, who are, like, the mother and potentially the father, like, if that's the thing, you know, the parents who have produced these embryos and may potentially want them or not want them the fact like the idea that they don't have any say that they can't say yes we're happy for these to be used for research like they they just have no input at all like that's just
2: yep it's entirely it was a strange fraught time for stem cell biologists in 2009 obama took it back so phew Phew. research started again (laughs) But, but in the interim, something amazing happened. So and not in the US, surprisingly, you think they would since they couldn't work with stem cells, maybe they were trying, we don't know. So leading up to 2006, we did have mouse embryonic stem cells, and we could study these in vitro, and grow them and culture them for quite a long time. And some of the things that we kind of discovered was that there were certain genes, which would create proteins. So certain genes and proteins, that if you either like removed from their cell culture media so they didn't have access to them or genetically modified the cells so that they didn't express that gene, they wouldn't be able to maintain their stem cell properties and they would divide and differentiate. And so we kind of started creating just like a list of things, of genes, of proteins that were sort of needed or we thought needed to maintain a stem cell And so this was like, what contributes to the stem cell identity is if it has this like list of genes, okay? And so there were 20 or so of these when we went into 2006 to um, these two Japanese researchers. And so one of them, so this was uh, Shinya Yamanaka and Kazutoshi Takahashi. So Yamanaka and Takahashi were doing research on these factors. And so what they did was actually quite clever. They took like a panel, a panel of twenty of these different factors, and they took and cultured fibroblasts. A fibroblast is a type of biological cell that synthesizes the extracellular matrix and collagen. So, they're found in connective tissue. They synthesize kind of all of our extracellular structure. Um, So, they're just a cell type, and you can get like you can get loads of them from and this is again mouse research you can get loads of them from like the tail tips of embryonic mice and then you can culture them in vitro you can pretty you can get loads of them from pretty much anywhere in the like skin area epidermis like outer layer of embryonic mice they just live there and exist and they're producing all of the collagen that's going to be necessary to support a full-grown structure Mm -hmm. so they had these fibroblasts growing in culture what they knew was there was this gene called the fbox fifteen gene. <laughs> Sorry. What? <laughs> it's not just us. It's not just us. I can't really tell you. <laughs> gene names in biology are it's just like don't ask That's a
0: whole nother podcast is naming genes. At uh- least <laughs>
1: it's just not just physicists that name things like warm, hot intergalactic media <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: So essentially this FBOX15 gene, it is expressed pretty much exclusively or a lot by embryonic stem cells, right? Mm -hmm. But they had found previously, or somebody had found previously, I don't know if it was them specifically, that it wasn't required to maintain a stem cell. Like a stem cell didn't need it to be a stem cell. Stem cells just expressed it Mm
3: -hmm.
2: a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know why that is, but that's just the case. So what they did is they took this gene location on the genome in fibroblasts and they inserted a what you often do is if you are trying to like genetically edit cells to find out if they've been appropriately genetically edited you normally put a resistance gene into their genome so that you can grow them on a plate that has that toxin yeah that toxin that would normally kill the cells but it doesn't kill them because they now express this gene that allows them to digest it essentially cool and so you can do this in human cells, you can do this in bacterial cells, like, this is a very common method in cell biology to just essentially select for cells that have a specific genetic mutation.
0: Yeah, interesting.
2: And so, so they took fibroblasts, and they took this Fbox 15 gene, (laughs) and they recombined it, so they edited it, so that instead of, or in addition to expressing a Fbox 15 protein, I'm not exactly sure, they expressed in that same region, the gene that would allow them resistance to the drug, that they put in the media. And then after that, so then they have all of these fibroblasts that if they express F box 15, then they will also express um, resistance to Mm -hmm. drug. But Mm -hmm. fibroblasts don't express a lot of F box 15. Okay. They only express a little bit. So they normally would only express a little bit of drug resistance. So they all die. So it depends on the concentration of the drug in the plant. But yeah, if you grow them at high enough concentrations, they all die. they also did this with embryonic stem cells because embryonic stem cells express a lot of fbox 15 so they did the same thing and found out what concentration embryonic stem cells could survive of the drug and they did this for fibroblasts and then they took the fibroblasts and genetically modified them again essentially to express these 24 factors that they knew were important in stem Mm cellness and when they did this the fibroblasts changed their morphology in vitro which means that they changed shape and started to look more like embryonic stem cells.
0: Cool.
2: And not only that, is that they survived and formed colonies on this really high concentration drug plate. Wow. It's that where before only embryonic stem cells could have survived. Wow. So that meant the FBOX15 gene was upregulated. It was being expressed a lot more at the levels that maybe a stem cell would normally express it.
0: So it's almost like the cells were walking and talking like stem cells, even though they weren't stem cells to begin with and weren't stem cells currently.
2: Exactly. Well, where do they stem cells currently? That was the thing. So yeah, they mm. started out as fibroblasts. When you expressed these 24 genes, they started to not look like fibroblasts. Like they didn't look like fibroblasts anymore. And they were expressing this gene that is associated with being a stem cell. Mm-hmm. And they were surviving on that plate. That's how we could tell. Cool. And so, but this was 24 genes <laughs> to um, get into one cell.
3: Mm-hmm. And so
2: that's a very difficult thing to do is to get one cell expressing 24 genes that you've put into it like that's mm-hmm. a lot of genetic editing essentially to do
3: mm-hmm.
2: and so they wanted to see they wanted to narrow it down so what they did was instead of doing all 24 they did 23 and just subtracted one at a time oh my goodness yeah okay to see which one to was see, like to see if any specific ones could prevent it from happening hmm And so from there, they found 10, that if they took those 10 out at one at a time, Mm -hmm. they had extremely reduced colony formation, essentially, so that these cells now were not expressing Fbox 15 at a high level, and therefore were not expressing drug resistance anymore Mm -hmm. at the level needed to survive on the plate. And so they found 10 factors, and then they did this again with those 10 factors. And essentially, they narrowed it down to four factors that could kind of, at a really high level and pretty much at the same level as the combination of 10 factors or at the as the combination of 24 factors they found that these four factors could induce a cell to become stem-like
0: cool
2: so these are called the yamanaka factors they were super 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 important because this was the first time because before this we knew that a stem cell could become any other type of cell but at a certain point as hans spayman showed a cell was committed, and it wouldn't go back to being able to be any other type of cell. And we thought that was the case. Like, we didn't know that, we didn't believe or necessarily know or think that you could get a differentiated cell, like a fibroblast, and turn it back into a stem cell. Like, that was not, that was not a cell biology idea. At this time, cell biology was that, as a cell differentiates, that's like, those are final steps. It can't go backwards, it can only go forwards until it gets to its final spot. So here, Yamanaka and Takahashi showed that this was not true. And actually, if you just took these four factors and overexpressed them in a cell, this cell would start to exhibit stem like properties. And they like measured this in a bunch of different ways and showed that like these are pretty much like they're not exactly like embryonic stem cells. They don't express all of the same genes at all of the same levels. And there's like differences to their function. but they're much more similar to a stem cell than they were to a fibroblast anymore. Like they were not like a fibroblast.
0: Did they find that this was only true in fibroblasts or did they do it in other differentiated cells as well?
2: So for their research, I don't know that they did it with any other starting cell type. I think they mostly just used fibroblasts. Okay.
0: I mean, yeah, they, they did a lot of work in yeah. fibroblasts and like looking into these factors. So,
2: Essentially, yeah, we got the Yamanaka factors. They were these four proteins. They were super important. Yes. And this led to the field of IPS cells, which stands for induced pluripotent stem cells. Hmm. So essentially with these IPSCs or induced pluripotent stem cells, you could take really easily accessible cell types that are differentiated and de-differentiate them back into a cell that can form any kind of cell. And they had actually shown this in the 2006 paper by injecting these IPS cells into. Well, so first, like one of the main ways that you study or that you did study stem cells back in like the 80s, 90s to 2000s to prove that they were stem cells and not just like some other differentiating cell type, but you had somehow grown in culture is that if you took them and you injected them into an animal, and if they're a stem cell, they're going to form a teratoma, which is a kind of cancerous growth but cancerous growths kind of divide uncontrollably and are typically like semi differentiated cells and they form a specific cell type cancer cell type you know if you have liver cancer you're gonna have liver cancerous cells teratomas actually form kind of structures that contain all different types of cells and they actually have like layers of different cell types and so Mm -hmm. if we go back to developmental biology we know that in development, the different parts of an organism come out of different cell layers. So the outer layer of cells in the organism, in the developing like thing before it, while it's still a ball in an egg, this outer layer, it's called the ectodermal layer. And these form like all of the skin, also all of the nervous system, which is pretty cool, but they're considered like the outer layer of cells, ectodermal cells, they will always go on to form skin and nervous system tissue. Then you have the mesoderm, which is like a middle layer of cells, meso for middle. And this forms mm-hmm. muscle, pretty much. In general terms, muscle, middle structures. And then you have the endoderm, which is the inner dermis, mm-hmm. layer, skin. And this forms all of your like intestinal tract and inner organs. And so when you look at a cross-section of a teratoma you cut it up, You'll find like, very specific parts of it that have ectodermal tissue structures, so skin and nervous system, other parts that have developed into mesodermal structures like muscle, mm-hmm. and other parts that have developed into endodermal structures like kidneys or pancreas.
0: So if I'm understanding you correctly, they knew that these were stem cells because when they injected them into living organisms, they would kind of basically start to grow into not just a cancerous nodule, but like an actual almost not an embryo but a differentiated mm-hmm. nodule yeah. interesting
2: yeah a ball of weird differentiated cells it's very specifically called the teratoma a teratoma yeah and it has these different things and so they could look at it and they could look at markers and like the organization and structure for these three different cell layers and they found all three so that's how they showed that these ips cells that they had derived had stem-like properties because they were forming the three different layers of the organism then what they also did, which I think is really cool, is they took them, and essentially they made a line that also were GFP positive. So, you could see them. They were green. What's GFP? Green fluorescent protein. Haha! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I, it's
1: so ubiquitous to me, but of course... No, I remember studying that at yeah. school. When you were talking about um, like poisoning the cells and seeing whether they lived, the thing that came to my mind before that, to see whether you'd... like. The cell was being expressed, the gene was being expressed was the... Fluorescent protein. The fluorescing green, yeah. Yeah,
2: I mean, that's another great way to see if a cell is expressing a certain protein. So they had iPS cells that expressed GFP as well, and so they injected them into like the part of the developing embryo zygote of a mouse that would form the mouse itself and not the extra embryonic structures. Mm-hmm. And when they did that and then let the mouse develop, they got like a mouse that was green everywhere. (laughs) There were green cells all throughout its body. Wow. (laughs) Wow. So these cells like integrated and became many different parts of the body of the mouse. Right. So that was pretty cool. So this is like huge discovery, huge discovery of these Yamanaka factors, which led to the whole field of iPSC derived cells and iPSCs. Yeah. So since 2006, 2007, when they, in 2007, they did this with human cells. So they took human biopsies human um, muscle tissue biopsies to get fibroblasts and did the same thing. So they showed that you could do this with human cells. They
0: made green humans?
2: (laughs) No, no, not green. (laughs) No, IPS. That would be cool. (laughs) Sorry. They took human fibroblasts and they de-differentiated them into stem cells and was like, look, you can do this with humans too. And this opened up a whole new exciting field because all of a sudden scientists were like, well, maybe that means we can develop like we can grow human organs mm-hmm. now outside and we don't need to depend on ivf yeah to get mm-hmm. human embryonic stem yeah. cells anymore we can get stem cells in different ways and this also opened up a whole new field of what is called autologous stem cell transplants and so what this means is that normally if you're going to transplant a stem cell you've got it from an ivf fertilization right which means it doesn't it's not the same genotype it doesn't have the same genetic material as the person that you want to give it to because obviously they weren't made by the same IVF fertilization. Mm -hmm. And even if they were, they still wouldn't have the exact same genetic material because of the differences in siblings, right? They would just be a sibling. That would be the closest you could get. Mm -hmm. Um, But now what you could do is you could take a sample of your patient's own cells, turn them into stem cells, and then differentiate them presumably into whatever cell type that person needed. So
1: they've got less chance. Yeah. So
2: like you can try and get over the organ graft donor recipient yeah um barriers that exist yeah injection blah, blah, blah. essentially since we've discovered ipsc cells what was interesting afterwards was like well now we have stem cells can we differentiate them again into different cell types and so you can you can differentiate them into like pretty much any cell type you can think of i don't know what ones haven't been done but like most of them have been done a lot of them have been done i Amazing. yeah so it's pretty cool and then this also this is also huge for research because it meant, like I said, in my research, now I could study real human neurons mm-hmm. in a dish. Because before that, you couldn't study human neurons in a dish unless you were lucky enough to have like a human embryonic stem cell that you differentiated into a neuron. But those were really hard to get your hands on, really finicky, hard to grow. And nowadays, it's actually like quite relatively easy to get your hands on a human iPSC derived cell and differentiate it into a neuron and then study how human neurons work in vitro, which is Hugely exciting.
1: So, how do you do your research? If you don't start from a stem cell and produce like, do you get neurons already made?
2: So, uh, we have a stem cell facility at my institute. So they do all of the taking humans like fibroblasts and making them into iPSCs. Okay. So induced pluripotent stem cells and then they also make them into neural stem cells or okay. neural precursor cells at that point and you called. just
1: go along and you're like can i have some neurons please and they're like here you go
2: yeah kind of they give me eye culture then the neural precursor cells so like precursor cells are kind of similar to stem cells in the fact that they divide and replenish themselves and so i can grow these in culture for like a long time and continue getting more and then i take these neural precursor cells and put them in a different plate with different media, and then they start to differentiate into actual okay. neurons. So I do like the final, final steps of the process, but I don't really know what the initial steps of the process are to get from like stem cells to neural precursor cells. Those are a bit more difficult.
1: Um, how do you go about being a person to give cells? Have you done it? Can
2: I do it?
0: In Canada, you can.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Like anyone can volunteer to be a part of a research study. Essentially, these are just, like, research studies, like any other, and what y- you do is if you find one and you apply to be a part of it and they bring you in, they will just take a cell sample. Usually now it's blood donation, so you get, like, blood cells and de-differentiate those, because that's, like, tissue biopsies mm-hmm. are, like,
1: quite not
2: exactly. No, but, like, yeah, people who don't have any reason to be getting a tissue biopsy shouldn't just go yeah, in and yeah. give one, you know? Um, so typically blood donation, if they need more, like, control patients often people getting tissue biopsies can just be kind of recruited at the hospital, I think, and then asked if they want to like to give a piece of their tissue biopsy to research this type of thing. In
0: Canada, just like you give blood in Canada, you can give stem cells at uh, Canadian blood services takes
2: organ donation and stem cell donation. That's, that's yeah. more for like donating to people. Yeah.
1: You can do but... that in the UK as well.
2: So that's for hematopoietic stem cell transplants. Our first, yeah, first you can do that stem cell. In the UK. Yeah. Yeah. So, when you're donating stem cells for um, a blood drive, I guess, this isn't for uh, research purposes. This is for donation purposes, right? Mm -hmm. You're like, well, why are we donating blood stem cells? And this is actually for treatments for people who have sometimes like uh, leukemia, I think is one of them and other diseases of the blood. And so essentially what's really cool about the hematopoietic stem cell and why it was such an important discovery is because it produces all of the blood cell types. So if you have a disease of the blood, you can get um, like radiation therapy or chemotherapy to completely obliterate all of your blood cells, essentially, dividing cells. And then you get a transplant to repopulate your blood. Oh, Alistair, I wanted to come back to your um, point at the beginning of how do we get now an embryo from two men? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. What you can actually do is what people are trying to develop is the generation of egg cells and sperm cells from a stem cell. So then you could just take a fibroblast or a blood cell from your man, mm-hmm. de-differentiate it into a stem cell, and then differentiate it into an egg mm-hmm. cell. And then you could fertilize it with the other man's sperm.
1: This is cool stuff.
0: Yeah. All right. Do you have a quiz for us?
2: Um, I did not prepare one. But yes, of course I have a quiz for you guys. <laughs> Yay. Okay, so can I hear your buzzers?
0: <laughs> Whoop. That's the sound of a ce- that's the sound of a cell dividing.
1: Whoop. Uh-huh. Nice. Okay. Mine so- is when the when the um stem cell is like introduced into a new environment and it's like, oh I have to change and it's like the alarm bell that goes up in its head. It's like <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay.
2: Great. Love it. Okay. So first question. Question for both of you. Buzz in with an answer. What is the list of characteristics that define a stem cell? What? Okay, go, Alistair. You can name one or all four. Or more than
0: one. Oh, okay. It's long-lasting. Yeah. It can become a number of different cell types.
2: Yep. That's right. Not necessarily
0: all, but a, a good number. Yep. Yeah. Um, no, I only got those two. Yeah, I that's what I got
1: too, as well. Okay. It's divide. It can divide. It's not an end stage. I can't remember, like terminal. I can't yep. remember.
2: That's what Al- Alistair, differentiate, create other cells Oh, cell is that the cells? same yep. thing? Yeah. Yeah, I guess it wise. is. What, yeah. what are the other two? The other two are that they reproduce themselves, mm-hmm. and then they're regulated by their environment. Right,
0: right. You, you can't take a stem cell out of its environment and expect it to mm-hmm. be a stem cell.
2: But we didn't really talk about that as much because we do take them out of their environment and grow them in vitro. And <laughs> yeah, true. Do stuff with them, so. Yeah. Interesting story. Okay, question number two. So... What was the experiment that Hans Spemann did in 1903 that was the first evidence that a cell has the ability to become many other cells? <laughs> 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 you both are so excited. <laughs> we know fizzes. Um, I heard you both at the exact same time, so I don't know what to do in this Okay, case. we
0: got to say it at the same time, Beth. Ready? So. <laughs>
2: Why don't one of you starts. the other one Beth, you okay. say yours, okay. and then Alistair, you can add anything
1: else. He took a new egg, which is a bit like frog spawn, but newtish instead of froggy, and he <laughs> took a piece of his baby daughter's hair, which is maybe the weirdest part of this. <laughs> and he made it into a loop and like tied it around the the newt egg really really tightly, so that he <laughs> he could basically separate two sides of the egg. So basically, the idea was that nothing could travel between them, although it was very difficult for things to travel between them. And what happened was, um, on one side of the egg, the side that had the nucleus, um, the egg started reproducing and made, like, loads of other eggs. And then about this... Loads of other eggs?
2: or no. loads of other cells.
1: Okay. The egg started the egg cell started to divide and made loads of other yeah, okay, not eggs, but like loads of other cells. And then around the 30 around the 16 to 32 cell mark, a cell would make its way through the barrier that he'd created somehow and um, if the cell made its way through the barrier, then it could start dividing and making more cells on the other side. so you'd have like a an embryo on one side that was sixteen cells older sixteen cells times cell to time ratio, yes <laughs> older than the embryo on the other side of the. Divide exactly, and he was like, Wow, you can make two times of an embryo out of
2: one mm-hmm. fertilized egg. And actually, something I didn't mention at the time, but they did this with once they had like mouse zygotes in vitro as well. They did this with them, and they found that up to the four cell stage, you could really like take a cell and make a new embryo out of it, but they would always be smaller if you did mm. that. Mm. Interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: Thought, I've got nothing to guess. add, but thought that was a perfect explanation. Other than confusing uh, <laughs> eggs with cells. <laughs> understandable. <laughs> Honestly, understandable. Yeah. What's the difference? They're
2: the same are, thing. I mean, eggs are like... sometimes cells, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. sometimes they're many cells. Okay, great. Great answer, Beth. That was exactly it. He did the things with the newts. Cool. <laughs> so then, what are the Yamanaka factors? Hmm? Yeah, you go, Alice. The
0: Yamanaka factors are four factors that were discovered by two Japanese scientists, uh, one whose last name was Yamanaka and the other one I have forgotten promptly. Um, But they discovered that although there were 24 factors identified needed or uh, that are present in a stem cell, you don't need all 24. And they did a lot of work and a lot of experiments to discover these four. And if you have these four, a cell can express um, top box 40, matchbox 20. Um, <laughs>
2: like, yeah, we're calling it matchbox 20 from now on. Can express
0: It can express matchbox 20 like it's a stem cell. Yeah, the, the factors were discovered um, and it was a revolution that you could take a seemingly differentiated cell and have it basically turn into a stem cell.
1: Benjamin Button itself.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, But I thought there were 10 of them, not 4.
0: There were 24 factors originally. That There are 24 factors. And then they found 10 that had a significant impact. And then they found the 4 that were like, these are the 4. Okay. These are the... The
2: key 4. Key okay. Four. Yeah. I'm sorry that I missed that. Yeah, you're right. They started with 24 factors. And essentially what they discovered, I guess I didn't touch on this very much, but the reason why these 4 it was only these four that you needed, was because these four were able to turn on the other ones.
1: Oh, okay, because oh, okay, then I was going to ask a follow-up question. You
2: end up getting expression of all of them, at like, more or less depending on the gene and depending on how well you differentiated them back into a stem cell. But you get the expression of the other ones because of the work of, that these ones do. Interesting, okay. Essentially. So that's why these were the ones that were necessary, whereas the other ones are kind of... They're produced by the process but they can't produce the process right. themselves cool yeah mm-hmm. so i think that's it for my topic uh introduction to stem cells you guys did a great job answering all of the questions and i hope you feel like you've taken something away from this podcast today any final thoughts
0: yeah well great job on teaching about stem cells
2: yeah yeah so i hope you guys have developed an interest and understanding and maybe like an excitement for stem cells from this episode today and feel like you know a little bit more and now can like school other people when the topic of stem cell ultimately comes up and they don't actually know anything about what they're talking about now you can be like actually there's four characteristics that make a stem cell and um yeah sounds a little <laughs> like a boss
1: you know what i'm really gonna say is i'm gonna say there are four characteristics that make up a stem cell and you can hear all about them in our podcast Not <laughs> hey. Get <a> exactly
3: exactly <laughs>
2: Thank you for listening to our podcast, Not Yet a Doctor. My name is Sienna. I'm the one talking on and on about stem cells.
1: My name is Beth and I haven't been talking on and on about stem cells.
0: And my name is Alistair and I'm gonna have babies with stem cells.
2: And we hope to catch you next time here on our podcast, Not Yet a Doctor. I think next episode will be about physics again. So yeah. stay tuned.